Wow, that was beautiful and so appropriate for this time. Well, good morning. My name is Jaime Jimenez, and I'm one of the pastors here at Christ the King. Our text this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, verses 12 to 25. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he will not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. Because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree wither away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you curse has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us, let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we meditate upon this text, we wish to see Jesus. We pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will open our eyes to see his glory. Through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. I find this story uh, very interesting in a unique way. And I say this for at least two reasons. The most obvious one has to do with Jesus' actions in both the cursing of the fig tree and then in what happens at the temple. Both of these events are quite puzzling. On the story of the fig tree, for example, we might be wondering, why would Jesus curse a poor, innocent fig tree for not having figs when Mark clearly tells us that it was not the season for figs. You know, many people find this troubling because it seems a spontaneous act of Jesus with no apparent purpose. But then what happens next after the cursing of the fig tree perhaps is even more surprising. What Jesus did at the temple was not a small thing, especially if we consider that it happened during the Passover week when thousands and thousands of pilgrims will come to the mount, to Jerusalem, to the temple. The temple was not just a building. For the Israelites in the first century, 
the temple represented the center of their religious and political life. And just to give you a quick picture of how crowded it probably was and how much business was done, Flavius, Flavius Josephus, the first century uh, historian, Jewish-Roman historian, records in one of his writings that at one particular Passover, some years later, more than 250,000 lambs were sacrificed. So you can imagine the amount of people, of trade, of activity going on that week at the temple. And in the midst of that, we find Jesus driving out people and overthrowing the, the tables of the money changers. It's puzzling because this Jesus doesn't fit with the way we normally think about him. There is a second reason why I find this story interesting in a unique way. And that is the way it is structured. It is actually two stories that are mingled. One is sandwiched by the other. Mark begins with the fig tree. Then he talks about the temple. And then he goes back to the scene at the fig tree. If you like hamburgers, you can think of the scene at the temple as the meat. And then the two scenes related to the fig tree as the top half and the bottom of the bun. Now, this is not uncommon in the gospel. But it's very important to note, because Mark, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is actually telling us that both stories need to be understood in relationship with each other. That's actually how Jesus planned it to be. The fig tree story interprets and explains what happens at the temple. So this morning, as we meditate upon this text, I feel like we, we are first of all confronted with the obvious question, what's wrong with the temple? In other words, what is Jesus condemning there? This is the first thing that we must seek to answer. Secondly, I would like for all of us to, to draw closer to the withered fig tree, so to speak, and observe and listen. What is it that Jesus won his first disciples and us, and us, I'm sorry, to know and to do? And finally, I would like for us to pause and reflect on our own lives to consider where do we need to recover the absolute centrality of the person of Jesus in defining who we are as well as what we do. So again, the three questions are, what's wrong with the temple? What does Jesus want his disciples to know and to do? And where in our lives do we need to recover the absolute centrality of the person of Jesus? So first of all, what's wrong with the temple? I was reading the other day about a building called Torre de David or Tower of David. It is actually one of the tallest buildings in South America. And it was intended to be a top-notch business center for the city of Caracas in Venezuela. Its uh, construction began in 1990, and its stylish design full of glass intended to be a projection of the wealth and the economic power of the back then booming economy. It was supposed to be a sanctuary for the city's top businessmen within the noise and the traffic of the capital city. However, three years later, 
1993, David Brillenbrook, the tower's main investor, died. And a year later, after a national banking uh, crisis that left uh, Venezuela's economy very deteriorated, its, its construction was halted, leaving the building abandoned and only 70% complete. The government took control of it and actually tried to sell it, but nobody made an offer. So after being neglected for many years, uh, many families saw in that shell or empty construction and an opportunity to find refuge within the city. So the skyscraper became then the improvised home for many that were willing to risk uh, forging a new life 20 or 30 floors above on a building that lacked running water, electricity, balcony railing, windows, and even walls in many places. It became a vertical favela or slum. This happened until the year 2014, when the government decided to relocate these families, leaving the building empty again. And then in 2018, the tower was significantly damaged by an earthquake, which caused a partial collapse of the top uh, five floors. And today, what was supposed to be a symbol of power, wealth, and success stands empty, useless, and basically ready to be demolished. Now, I share this story because I actually find some parallels um, with the temple in Jerusalem in Jesus' time. By the way, this was not the temple built by Solomon. That temple had been destroyed many years before. This was a temple built by those who came back from, to Jerusalem after the Babylonian exile. And then later on, it was expanded by Herod the Great. But in regards to the question, what's wrong with the temple? We can basically say that the temple had two main problems. One, it had an expiration date, which is not necessarily a bad thing, except when that date is about to happen, right? And secondly, and perhaps more importantly to understand the first part of the story, we can say that it went bad before time. So it had an expiration date and it went bad before time. Now let's look at the fig tree to understand this second problem. Mark tells us that Jesus saw in the distance a fig tree in leaf. But when he came to check it out, he found nothing but leaves. But if it was not the season for figs, what was Jesus expecting to find? Well, based, based on some research that I did, I learned that after the fig harvest that happens in the fall, the branches of fig tree uh, sprout some uh, protuberances that remain undeveloped through the winter, but then swell into small green knobs in the spring. The fig tree produces these knobs before it produces the new leaves. Meaning that if in the spring you saw a fig tree in leaf, you would expect to find branches loaded with these knobs that were actually considered a great delicacy and were commonly eaten by travelers. But if you saw a fig tree in leaf and the knobs weren't there, it will mean that something was wrong with that tree. And that is the case of the fig tree that Jesus saw. It was in leaf. It gave the impression of having fruit, but it was actually barren. 
and Jesus pronounced it is doom. Now that fig tree was a perfect representation of the religious life that the temple embodied in Jesus' time. There was a lot going on, a lot of business, a lot of activity, a lot of leaves, so to speak. But it was nothing more than empty religiosity. You know, the temple was supposed to be the, the best place on earth. It was the intersection between heaven and earth. It was the meeting place between God and his people. It was a reminder of paradise. And it actually explained what trusting God meant because through the sacrifices, you realize that to have fellowship with a holy God again, somebody had to die in your place to cleanse you from your sin. But instead of embodying what it was supposed to, the temple became a symbol of self-righteousness, greed, pride, ethnocentrism, abuse. Like the Torre de David that I mentioned before, the temple lost its purpose. It became fruitless. It offered an empty worship to God. They honor God with their lips, but their hearts was far from him. And Jesus makes this evident in the story when he said, Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of Robert. Of robbers. This charge is not about dishonest trade. It is actually a quote from two Old Testament books, the prophet Isaiah chapter 56 and the prophet Jeremiah chapter 7. And what is being condemned by the prophets and by Jesus is basically two things, lack of love for God and lack of love for your neighbor. Many people in Jeremiah's time were worshiping false gods and were living uh, in sin freely and carelessly. But then they will come to the temple without any sense of repentance and things, think that their lives were okay because they were fulfilling their religious duties. Thus the accusation of turning the house of the Lord into a den of robbers. They were not loving God. And by quoting from Isaiah... Jesus is actually denouncing that they were not loving their neighbor because God has said through Isaiah that one day foreigners and outsiders were going to be welcoming his presence and made joyful. But the temple, as it was functioning, embodied the opposite. The temple built by Herod had basically four sections. And the closest that a non-Jew could, um, could come in uh, was the outer zone called the Court of the Gentiles. It was a huge space uh, of about 35 acres. And that's where all the business was done. Then, after the Court of the Gentiles, was the actual sanctuary. But in between, there was a wall with a sign, with a warning written in Greek, Aramaic, and Latin, saying... No foreigner may enter within the railing and enclosure that surround the temple. Anyone apprehended shall have himself to blame for his consequent death. So I guess that not, that's not very welcoming. But that reflects how they look down on the foreigner. And remember that the temple represented the meeting place between God and man. But as, as a Gentile, as a non-Jew, that was the closest you could get. And in the only area 
that they had access, probably they couldn't even pray for all the business that was going on. So not love for God and not love for neighbor. That's what the temple embodied in Jesus' time. Outward worship, but then lives in utter contradiction. A hollow spirituality. Now, this takes us to our second question. So what does Jesus want his disciples to know and do? The story of the fig tree has a didactical purpose for the disciples. Through the fig tree and the conversation they have around it, Jesus was teaching something to them. And I think the point is this. Yes, the temple has lost its original purpose and developed a dry, hollow, fruitless spirituality. That's what you get when you push God to the margins and you try to save yourself by your own works. Yes, the temple and its leaders are, and those who pursue the same kind of life are going to be judged. That's true. However, that temple built with stones had an expiration date anyway. And that date was about to happen. And I believe that's what the conversation that Jesus had uh, with his disciples is all about. So let's look again at the second part of the fig tree story. The next morning we are told Jesus and his disciples passed by the fig tree that was now withered away to its roots. And Peter seems to be amazed by what happened and says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And then Jesus answers something that seems to be unrelated to the temple, but I, I don't think that's the case. He said, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and be thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And then Jesus talks about uh, prayer, and he talks about forgiveness. But why is Jesus talking about faith, prayer, a mountain be thrown into the sea, and forgiveness? I don't think Jesus is talking about moving mountains in general. I don't think he's talking about the power of prayer in general. I think he was talking about the specific mountain that they were looking at where the temple was. It is that temple mountain that is to be thrown into the sea as the object of faith. Not only because its worship was corrupted and empty, but because the person that the temple was anticipating was already here. And the way we relate to him is by faith expressed in prayer and demonstrated in the forgiveness of others. The old temple was just a shadow that became true with the coming of Jesus. He is the true temple. Edmund Clowney, who many of you knew personally, put it like this. It is not so much that Christ fulfills what the temple means. Rather, Christ is the meaning for which the temple existed. All the time, through all its history, 
the temple was about Jesus. For example, the temple was the place for the sacrifices. But that week when these events happened, Jesus was going to offer himself as our Passover lamb, as the perfect sacrifice once and for all to deal with our sin and turn away God's anger from us. There was no longer a need, nor it would be right, to go back to the old system of sacrifices at the Jerusalem temple. The temple also represented the meeting place between God and man. But there was still a separation, clearly communicated in many ways. One of them was through the thick curtain that divided the most sacred place, the Holy of Holies, from the rest of the temple. It was a big keep-out sign. But in virtue of Jesus' death, that curtain was turned down, and he became the supreme meeting place between God and man. By coming to him in faith is that we have fellowship with the triune God. So in very simple words, I believe that what Jesus wanted his disciples and us to know and to do is to set our minds, our heart, our hope, our affections on him as the true temple. As the only perfect sacrifice that we needed to be forgiven. As our great high priest that we needed to intercede in our behalf. And as God with us, the glory of his presence that we have always longed for. That's what he wants us to do. And this leads us to our last question. Where in our lives do we need to recover the absolute centrality of the person of Jesus in defining who we are as well as what we do? This story is a strong warning. It is a strong warning against a religious life and against an irreligious life built on anything else apart from Christ. As human beings, we all are seeking for redemption. We might have different names for that, and we might pursue that through different paths, but we all are seeking for our lives to somehow be made right, to be forgiven, perhaps, to be completely known and loved at the same time, to achieve wholeness, to know the truth. Now, a non-religious person might pursue that through pleasure or through a professional career. And a religious person might seek that through being a good person and fulfill his or her duties. But at the end of the day, no matter what it is, if it's not Jesus, it will crumble, it will go bad, or at best, it will expire. So the warning is not to, meet, to miss Jesus for something else. How ironic it is that the religious leader connected to the temple, who were supposed to be the ones most prepared to recognize the Messiah, were the ones that completely missed him and rejected him and pursued his crucifixion. But what about those of us that confess Jesus as Lord and Savior? Is our understanding and practice of Christian life really built on him? Or where do we need to recover the absolute centrality of Jesus in defining who we are as well as what we do? Well, this is a, a good question. And 
one thing we could do to answer this question is actually to look for the fruit behind the leaves, so to speak. Now, don't get me wrong. We are not saved by, by fruit, by the fruit. We are not saved by works. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But if Jesus is the true object of our faith, our lives shall be conforming to his life. Or as the larger, as the Westminster Larger Catechism reminds us, our justification and sanctification are inseparably joined. The first shall lead to the second. Therefore, I agree with, with um, what me, missiologist Michael Frost says when he wrote that the only way we can truly authenticate ourselves as an expression of Christianity is to somehow measure ourselves against the life and teachings of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We will always be found short, but are we following him? Are our actions congruent with our confession? And where they are not, we need to go back to Jesus in repentance, faith, and recalibrate our lives around him. But again, it's about going back to Jesus because our communion with the triune God is mediated through the Son. It is not about focusing on Jesus at the expense of the Father or the Spirit. Our salvation is Trinitarian. But Jesus reveals the Father to us. So if we want to know what God is like, we don't need to speculate. By the work of the Spirit, we look to the Son as he has, revealed, as he has been revealed through us in the, in the Scriptures. So practically speaking, if we want to know how God loves, we look to Jesus. That's how God loved the world, and that's what love looks like. If we want to know what God does and what joining him in his mission will look like in this world, well, we look to Jesus and we learn from him. If we want to know what making disciples and discipleship is all about, we don't need to speculate. We look to Jesus. That's how you make disciples and that's what it means to follow Jesus. If we want to know how God saves, well... We look to Jesus dying on the cross. That's how God saves. And that's what we point others to. Again, the only way we can truly authenticate ourselves as an expression of Christianity is to somehow measure ourselves against the life and teachings of Jesus Christ our Lord. So think, just to provide an example, think on the idea of holiness. I grew up with the idea that holiness meant not doing certain things and therefore not hanging out with the wrong people. Now, I agree that there are things that are sinful and therefore we shouldn't do. So let's be clear on that. But you can live a morally upright life and leave Jesus completely out of the equation. Actually, my idea of holiness only led me to feel good about myself when I was able to manage those things and to look down on those who were not as disciplined as I was. But then, look at Jesus' holiness in the Gospels. It was a redemptive 
missional kind of holiness. He never sinned, and yet his holiness was compelling. It was a very attractive spirituality, and it had the opposite effect of what my idea of holiness had. Because his holiness caused all kinds of sinners wanting to be around him. They couldn't get enough of him. Jesus was known as a friend of sinners. And not only they wanted to be with him, but he wanted to be with them. He didn't separate it from the world, but instead he brought redemption, beauty, healing, freedom into it. But here's where we need to pause and ask ourselves as missiologists Al and Deb Hirsch proposed. What is it about the holiness of Jesus that caused sinners to flock to him like a magnet and yet managed to seriously antagonize the religious people? And why does many times our form of holiness seems to get it the other way around? We comfort the religious and antagonize the sinners. I know I need a more missional, redemptive, grace-oriented type of holiness like Jesus. I want my Christian life to actually look more like Christ himself. I can't do that on my own, but I can go back to Jesus in repentance, faith, and then I recalibrate around him. And the good news is that he welcomes sinners. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, how scary it is to know that we can be busy with our religious life and yet miss Jesus completely. Help us, Holy Spirit, to go back to Jesus and rest on him alone for our salvation and empower us to follow him in such a way that our Christian life will actually look more and more like the life of Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen.